interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Um, when Christian asked me to, to do a talk on reflections on ministry in the academy, I was not quite sure what <laughs> I should really do. In particular, I wasn't quite sure what the audience would be. So I'm going to apologize in advance. I was basically writing this with the expectation I would have an audience that would be at least half graduate students and junior faculty. Um, so really trying to offer reflections from somebody who wasn't at the end of my career but was far enough in to have some sense of how does this all fit together. Clearly this is not the right pitch level for everybody in the audience and my apologies in advance if this strikes you as, uh, as, as bizarre. <laughs> um, so in talking about starting off with the bizarre, <laughs> Um, let me offer what I think is, is actually a remarkably good metaphor for um, the academic life and perhaps how we as academics ought to think about our role as ministers in the academy. I, as I mentioned this morning, I've got five children. And um, a few years ago, I had what, what really ought to be termed a bit of an epiphany. I took one of my children to a birthday party at this place called Discovery Zone. I'm sure you've all seen these big indoor play structures. And uh, my daughter walks in with a bunch of her friends and there's a fellow there who's responsible for the birthday party who gets them all out of their shoes and says, why are you here? And all of these kids in one voice shout, play, and they take off running. And they head into the structure and they all go different directions at different speeds and do different things and some stop and watch and others go flying about with reckless abandon and some of them are giggling and some of them are plainly scared out of their wits. Um, and they just do very different things the whole time through. They had a very common sense of their mission, but they're going off in completely different directions, some in groups, some on their own. And then by the end, they all show up in the same place and go home. Um, there's an important metaphor in there, I think, for what we do as academics because we all start at the same spot we often behave like children. Um, <laughs> no, but we all, we, all, we all start with a PhD and then we head off. But some people go the route of teaching a lot and throwing themselves wholly into their teaching. Others choose a different path and go into the research tunnel. Other people spend their time on administration. People punctuate research and teaching with administrative activities or sabbaticals at different points in time. I mean, it's very much like the children in the Discovery Zone playground where different people take a different path. Um, and I think this is really important for us to keep in mind as we look at our colleagues and interact with our colleagues and as we look at students and interact with them because in, in, in my view, there are different paths and we have to be very careful about judging one path to be superior to another because typically we think the path we're on is the one that's best. And they're just different, I think. Um, moreover, I mean, Paul tells us there, there's one body but many parts. And it takes people doing lots of different things to make it all work. Um, that's no less true in the academy than in life more broadly. 
So I try to, I, I actually have a little picture of Discovery Zone in my home office to remind myself of that from time to time that, you know, we're each kind of playing around in a different corner here and doing slightly different things and it's important for me to take note of what people in the other tunnels are doing from time to time. Um, so with that slightly bizarre beginning, um, this quote from Luke was my senior quote. Uh, you know, in, when one has a college yearbook, you're asked for a senior quote. And Luke 12:48 was my senior quote. Everyone to whom much is given, of him will much be required, and of him to whom men commit much, they will demand the more. Um, when I was graduating from college, it was very clear to me that I had been given much. I had a supportive family. I had just gotten a wonderful education. I had no idea what God was demanding of me. Um, so this, this quote was both an instruction to myself and a source of, of real dilemma for me because I knew that a lot was being demanded, but I hadn't a clue as to where to go. I was not an economist as an undergraduate, by the way. I went through about six undergraduate majors. Uh, it's not a pretty tale. Um, and I wound up as a history major at Princeton before wandering off in economics as a graduate student. Um, but by way of background, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, and I went through parochial schools. And starting in adolescence and through early adulthood, through a number of years after college, I was constantly wrestling with whether to go to seminary and become a priest. At one level, I really wanted to be a priest. I felt that this would be a wonderful vocation, that I would love to go off and minister to people in a parish or uh, go off on mission, but I just never quite felt the right calling. And, um, and I... I was troubled by this. Sometime in my late 20s, it became clear to me why I never felt that calling. Two things happened. First and foremost, I met and married my wife, Clara, and we started a family, and it became clear to me that I was called to be a husband and father, and at least as of now, that's incompatible with being a Catholic priest, so, um, so that I clearly had chosen the right path. But also professionally, um, Early in my career in Washington, I was working as an economist. I, uh, I, I found myself very troubled by the way in which I and my colleagues were doing economics. I worked for a small think tank called the Institute of International Finance, which works for commercial creditors, for big banks around the world, in helping them to understand what's taking place in third world countries. So, we would advise banks on macroeconomic reform programs that affected their lending and debt rescheduling decisions with sovereign debtors, with, with third world states. Um, fascinating work. I had a wonderful boss, great colleagues, learned a tremendous amount, but I was very troubled by the fact that I had to constantly undertake very complex analyses in very short periods of time. I had to build elaborate models and write up very precise estimates in a matter of weeks before moving on to the next country in my portfolio. And I felt this was a little too cavalier. And one day I made the mistake of sitting down and looking at past forecasts I and colleagues at the World Bank and the IMF had, had generated and did some statistical tests and found that there was really systematic bias in our forecasts. We were constantly over-optimistic about what the response of economic growth to reforms would be and that our biases were greatest in the poorest countries and the most agrarian countries. And hence, my path into working in poor agricultural areas. Because I realized that 
what we understood least well were poor farmers and how they responded to macroeconomic changes and sectoral changes. So I had an intellectual calling and I, I had a very clear sense then as I went back to graduate school in economics that this wasn't accidental, that God really was leading me in this direction, that I, I had a very precise calling, a question that I was meant to try to start answering. And this morning you heard a little bit of, of what I think I've learned about this. Um, but so we have a calling and we're given a great deal uh, to work with. And I think we academics are given an extraordinarily uh, rich array of tools and experiences to get to work with. We receive a lot and we are required to give a lot back. Um, now the first challenge in there is to understand how unmistakably flawed we are. As humans, we're all sinners and we always will be. And that's the nature of the human, human existence. There's a, there's a wonderful parable that my son called my attention to a couple of weeks ago that I'd like to briefly share with you um, that I think speaks to this and how we can, how we can make use of our sinfulness. Um, as long as, as, as we're attentive to trying to heed our calling. The parable goes something like this. There's a, there's a man in a small village, wherever you'd like it to be. India, I think, is where my son told me this is supposed to be, but it doesn't much matter. And he, every day he goes off with two water jugs on a stick. I don't know how many of you have ever seen people carrying water long distance. You know, I have a stick across your shoulders and water jugs on either side. And he goes to fill these water jugs each day. And one pot is flawless and the other pot has a crack in it. And when the man comes back to his master's house each day, he's basically got one and a half pots of water because the cracked pot leaks routinely. And the perfect pot is very proud of itself. It, it fulfills perfectly its mission. It was created for this and it does it perfectly. And the cracked pot is quite embarrassed by its flaw. And one day after this water carrier has been going to and from the stream for quite some time, one day the cracked pot says to the water carrier as he bends down to fill the pot, I'm sorry, you have to work much harder because of my flaws. You know, you labor to fill this jug with water and take it back to your master, and I lose half of it on the way for you, and as a result, you have to work harder, and I apologize to you. And the water carrier turns to the pot and just says, look at the flowers as we walk back. And so they walk back, and when they get to the master's house, the cracked pot again says to the water carrier, the flowers were indeed lovely. It made the walk much more pleasant, but I still feel very badly. And the water carrier says, you don't understand. I've known all along you were cracked. And I planted seeds along the side of the path. What you didn't notice is that the flowers are only on your side of the path. There are no flowers on the other side. And the fact that you leak allows me to grow flowers and pick them and come back and decorate my master's table with them. And this brings him great pleasure. Your flaws are a great source of beauty for us. And I think that's, I mean, I, I really liked that story. This is another example of how we learn from our children or our students, I guess. Um, we all have these flaws, and the question becomes, how do we put them to good use? One of my deepest flaws is that I have a very short attention span. So I'm an unrepentant dabbler, as you may have been able to tell from this morning's presentation. I dabble in lots of different topics, and I try to make use of the fact that I have a hard time focusing on one topic and really plumbing it in great depth for an extended period of time to play to my weakness, basically, and work on integration, because I'm much more interested by dabbling in lots of things. 
Um, I'd like to think that to date I've done it very well, but it really it came about by having to fail at trying to concentrate on single things very intensely and finding I just wasn't very good at this. That's why I started off as a physics major at Princeton and got out of that pretty fast because I just was not good at intensive physics experiments. This, this was not my forte. Um, so I think there's a central message there for all of us. We all have weaknesses and we may perform our callings best by recognizing and accepting those weaknesses and making use of them so that those weaknesses can somehow glorify God. Um, I'd like to, before talking about academic functions, teaching and research and so forth, because I've tried to organize my thinking around those functions, I'd like to, to take a moment to emphasize that we all have a baptismal obligation. And I think that we're perhaps best served as we set about our daily work as academics. And I, this is in particular where I offer these sorts of reflections to graduate students and junior faculty. I think we're often best served as we set about our daily work. If we think in terms of what are our baptismal obligations as Christians, we're baptized as prophet, priest, and king. And what do those mean? Well, a prophet is called to seek and speak truth, right? We're to accept our talents, to use them wisely, even if our labor is not always for righteous masters. And we serve diligently and humbly, trying to speak truth to power, even at risk to ourselves. It's not always popular, but it's an obligation. We need to seek and speak truth. Um, this is obviously manifest in the research and teaching missions of the academic. You know, our obligation is to seek and speak truth and to try to convince others of truth as best we know it, as best it's revealed to us. We're also baptized as priests. Um, we're called to contribute to the sanctification of the world from within. doesn't mean that we're flawless. We're not. But we're called to help manifest Christ to others through teaching, through reconciliation, through forgiveness. Um, this is perhaps where academics have the hardest time, I think. It's very difficult for us to minister to one another, especially through things like reconciliation and forgiveness. Academics seem to have an uncommon capacity to hold a grudge. Uh, finally, we're baptized as, as kings. And in our kingly mission, we're called to serve. Um, in a moment, I'll, I'll quote one of our esteemed economics colleagues in the profession, Ken Elzinga, who has just a wonderful, wonderful um, teaching statement that I just realized I forgot to pull out, so I need to pull it out so I can read it to you in a minute. Um, but Ken emphasizes that for him, the key, key lesson of Christianity is the obligation to serve. Um, and we really are called to serve and empower those over whom we hold some dominion. And as teachers in particular, we have phenomenal power over our students. I think we fail to recognize this sometimes because we remember being students ourselves, and we don't think we're that different, but you know, just take some time to talk to a couple of students you know really well and hear how scared they are of most of your colleagues, and I think you'll realize the power you hold over them and therefore the obligation you have to serve them. So let me talk about functions now um, in, in a somewhat random sequence. Um, I, I start with teaching because I think it's the most obvious link to our Christian mission as academics. Jesus' disciples called him teacher, and that should convey to us what an extraordinary honor it is to get to work with young people in shaping their minds and their hearts 
and in particular in helping them to try to discern God's will for them, to help them to uncover the talents that God has vested in them that are often hidden. I mean, when I think back on my undergraduate years, going through half a dozen or however many majors I went through, it was pretty clear to me that I hadn't a clue of what talents I'd been given or what I was supposed to do with these. And fortunately, I had a couple of very good faculty who weren't bashful about telling me that I was plainly heading in the wrong direction or that, you know, you're pretty good at X. Why don't you try that for a little while? And that was just an enormous benefit to me, for which I'm forever grateful. We, we really need to work with students, just as Jesus worked with his disciples, to help them learn the basic truths of the world, to help them to understand God's will for them, and to help them to summon the courage to venture out into a sometimes pretty cynical and hostile world and to serve God in the face of, of, of uh, unspeakable evil in some cases. That, you know, there, there really is evil out there that they will confront regularly and they need to be prepared to stand up to it. Let me quote directly from Ken Elzing's personal statement of teaching philosophy. And I've got the, the website address there in case people are particularly interested in retrieving this from themselves. Ken is a very distinguished economist at the University of Virginia who's also written a series of wonderful novels that use economic principles to solve mysteries. Uh, if you just want to be amused, go read some of Ken's. He writes um, often with, with colleagues these novels under a pseudonym of Marshall Jevons. Marshall and Jevons were two of the classic neoclassical economists. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pseudonym that itself is meant to be a, a, a bit amusing. Here's what Ken writes in his personal statement of teaching philosophy. My colleagues in the Department of Religious Studies might contend that the most prominent image or picture of the Christian faith is the crucifix. For me as a teacher, it is the picture of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. The scene illustrates the upside down and paradoxical biblical principle of leadership. The one who leads should be willing to serve. If you want to be first, you line up last. I endeavor to apply that picture to my teaching. If I want best to lead a class of students, I should be willing to serve them. My authority as a teacher is linked to my willingness to serve my students. The principle is not void of content. Rather, it is a practical and sobering thing. For example, it seems clear that one way a teacher serves is by thorough class preparation. For me, this has meant not scheduling any substantive activities before my lectures, so I can focus my attention solely on the material and its presentation. It means mining an entire book for one small nugget, a useful classroom illustration. A teacher serves by being available. For me, this has meant setting my schedule to have no commitments immediately after a lecture, to be generous with office hours and to make myself available to my students at home. And he goes on and on. I commend to you Ken's statement of teaching philosophy. It's a great piece of work. Um, and I've, I, I actually make a point of going back and looking at Ken's statement of teaching philosophy at the start of every semester in which I teach, um, just to remind myself of what a very wise man thinks is the job to be done in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Um, to a certain extent, this matters also to our choice of courses. Although, as somebody who's taught a course where I can't imagine how you could ever bring Christian faith into the content. I, I've taught econometrics for a number of years. And this is just the application of statistical methods to economic theory. There, I don't know how you would ever make plain that you're teaching econometrics in a Christian way. 
I think you can do it nonetheless if you follow the sorts of guidance Ken offers there about preparedness and being available. But there are courses where you can try to challenge people more directly. I'm, I'm going to be starting a new course, offering a new course next fall, AIM 200, Contemporary Controversies in the Global Economy. The intent of which is to f challenge students to think about debates raging in the front pages of newspapers and news magazines. Things like genetically modified food that Dave Richardson was talking about earlier, or money laundering laws, or uh, laws restricting what some of us term obnoxious markets, trading in animal parts or human body parts, etc. And forcing students to think about these debates in terms of the underlying values, why there are stark disagreements, the roots that those disagreements have, and just different normative principles, that some people have a value system that elevates one principle, other people have a value system that elevates a different principle. And not to do this so that they will become convinced of my side of the debate. My objective is that they'll never know which one I favor, but rather that they think through what their values are and how to articulate their values and how to work out axiomatically from their values what is the right policy prescription, because that's what they have to do once they graduate from here. They have to be prepared to make decisions that are consistent with their own values. I'd like to believe that we can inculcate good values as well, but at a minimum, I want people to think carefully how to build on their own values and how to articulate them. And that's very explicitly the objective of that course, to take undergraduate business majors. We have the largest single department major at Cornell University here, almost 800 undergraduate business majors, and to make them think about their values before they get out of here and how to write and speak about them. That leads to the second topic, which is advising. Um, with 800 undergraduate majors in our department, we all do a fair amount of undergraduate advising. We don't centralize this in a couple of people. We spread it out across all the faculty. I see David Ng in the back kind of nodding painfully. <laughs> He's all too aware of this. Um, <clears throat> I sit my new freshman advisees down each year at the start of the semester, and I, some of you may know this parable. I, I tell them the parable of the rocks in the jar because um, I think it's perhaps the most important principle that they need to learn when they're starting off their undergraduate career. The principle goes like this. You take a big jar, and then you take a number of rocks, and you fill them up until you can fit no more rocks in the jar. And you ask, is this jar full? And students seeing the rocks and seeing the jar and seeing you can't get any more rocks in will typically say yes, at which point take a bit of sand and start pouring sand in among the rocks and then sand starts spilling over the edges and say, is this jar full? And now students won't answer because they realize there's some trick involved here. <laughs> and then take a glass of water and start pouring water in between the grains of sand and it will absorb a certain amount of water before it starts sloshing off the end. And then say, what's the point of this exercise? At which undergraduate business students inevitably will say, you can always fit more in. Right? That's, <laughs> I mean, that's, it's a guaranteed response. You can always cram a bit more in your day, which I suppose is true, but that's not actually the point. The point is you got to put the rocks in first. And that's the message that I try to make sure my undergraduates have. Figure out what's really important. You know, what are you going to carry out of your Cornell experience that's important? And make sure you get that in there first. You'll fit lots of other stuff in around the edges, but make sure that's there. And that typically that doesn't revolve around getting the top grade in every class you take. That is a much more holistic experience to kind of enjoy the full Cornell experience, to learn from your classmates and your 
roommates and to be actively engaged in student activities and athletics or whatever your calling is. Um, but to get the rocks in first is the most basic principle. Um, I had the interesting experience recently of one of my graduating seniors coming back and telling me that he still thinks about that day when we did that exercise just before classes start because he's faced a lot of real challenges. This is the advisee about whom I'm, I'm frankly most proud. Um, he's going to kind of barely graduate from Cornell. I'm not proud of him because he's been a superstar. I've had some students who've sailed through here and done fabulously well. But he faced some real challenges. He, he had three deaths in his immediate family in his first three semesters at Cornell. Um, his father, a brother, and a grandfather who was very close all died separately. It wasn't one big car accident, separate causes. And this was a real challenge for his family. And he's been a tremendous support for his mother. And he fell woefully far behind, but he soldiered on through summers taking community college courses that he could transfer credits in for and overloading and doing independent studies to fit in credits where he needed to. And he's going to graduate on time. And it's really remarkable. Um, he had set for himself the objective that only his father had ever graduated from college in his family. And the, what mattered to him was he needed to graduate and graduate on time. And he's rearranged lots of things to make that happen. And I can't, I can't think of a student here who I've been prouder of. Because in the face of just phenomenal obstacles, he's managed to, to get that accomplished. Advising graduate students is a very different kettle of fish, as many of you know. Um, in advising graduate students, I think the task is less being kind of a, a bit of a counselor or parent to just acculturating graduate students to become scholars. Making the transition from being a student to a scholar is not easy, as all of us recall painfully as we try to figure out how to start at writing our dissertations. Um, and so I, I try to work pretty hard to get my graduate students involved in research and going to conferences and just getting a sense of what is the business of being a researcher? Um, what is the business of being a scholar and not answering professors' questions, but rather posing the questions yourself and then answering them? That's a fundamental difference. The biggest challenge I face in advising students, whether undergraduate or graduate, I think, is recognizing, I'm going to come back to this question that I raised this morning of grace, recognizing that students are all graced by God, um, that each is special just because they're creating God's image. And it's a temptation to always think of the brightest students as the most special or uh, the star point guard of the Cornell basketball team is one of my undergraduate advisees. And, you know, my kids think this is incredibly cool, right? You know, they all want to come to the basketball games and go say hi to Quran, and that's great. He's very special indeed, and he's a very gifted basketball player. But just because he's a gifted basketball player doesn't mean he's somehow more special than anybody else created with different gifts. And I think the real challenge we face as advisors is to identify and help students identify for themselves what their gifts are. For some people, it's obvious. You can hit a three-point shot all the time, or you always ace tests. For other students, it's much harder. But they're there. And it's a challenge to find them sometimes. But perhaps those are the, 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 the cases that are most important, because they're perhaps the, the, the greatest gifts to be had if we can only uncover them. Just as the most precious gems typically are relatively deep in the soil created by tremendous pressure, 
It's often true of, of, of the gifts in students as well. They're often buried fairly deep and hard to find. Um, this leads to this concept that I was talking about this morning, also about discipleship, because I, I, I'm very much a believer that we not only teach, but we have to continue learning. Um, the thing that scares me most is how much I am forgetting. I've become convinced that we are at our peak as researchers about a year after we finish our PhD, and from there on, we're just constantly sliding downhill because I can't remember all sorts of things I know I should remember, and graduate students remind me of this routinely, and it's very embarrassing. Um, we have to keep learning. This is indeed, I find, the greatest benefit of working with graduate students because it's kind of a vicarious sabbatical. They're often my colleagues in advanced classes learning all this new stuff that I never learned or learning stuff that I learned and have long since forgotten, and they come back and, and reteach it to me or teach it to me for the first time. So I'm constantly learning from working with graduate students because they're learning and they're sharing what they learn. This, I think, is, is really one of the basic metaphors for the Christian academic because we are called to constantly learn, to try to work at understanding our calling in life, how we are to serve God and how we're to serve our neighbor. And when we grow too comfortable, when we become too successful and too confident in doing what we've proved ourselves pretty good at, then we probably should grow a bit worried um, because we probably aren't venturing off into this somewhat more dangerous terrain where we are challenged to learn and to come up with new ways of serving God. We just need to always be working at maturing in our understanding of God's calling for us. And in my view, that's one of the central roles for research, frankly. Um, when we stop doing research, we usually stop learning very quickly. Uh, so in my view, a central reason why anybody with professor in their title needs to be doing research that's the only way that we know you're still learning. Uh, and that should feed back into updating curricula, etc. So, research. If we're called to be scholars, then we should embrace the call of scholarship. Um, Dave Richardson has written a couple of very nice pieces on this, that if you're an economist, do economics and do it well for Christ's sake. Um, it doesn't really matter what your branch of economics is. Uh, my colleague David Ng in the back, I'll, I warned David that I was going to embarrass him this afternoon. Um, David works on international finance. Now, I can't think of off the top of my head any citation of international finance in scripture. Um, maybe somebody here can. Um, there's certainly lots of citation of poverty in scripture. But my research on poverty is of no greater service to God than David's research on finance simply because a concordance will deliver words for my topic and not for his in reasonably short order. We each serve God best by heeding that to which we're called. And different people are called to different things. It's just as important in this building for us to have a good accounting teacher teaching good financial accounting to undergraduates as it is to have somebody teaching the economics of poverty. Because there are going to be people who go out and have to run businesses and know how to do legitimate, accurate accounting. Um, we need to be very careful about somehow raising up on a pedestal work that is immediately and obviously relevant to the gospel messages of caring for the poor. It takes a big apparatus to make the world work the way that God wishes it to work. Um, and I, I've, I've become increasingly convinced over time that, uh, that, that there's perhaps too much emphasis placed within 
the Association of Christian Economists, for instance, on those of us who work on the economics of poverty or those who work on the history of economic thought and its relationship to theology or spirituality. Those are important topics, yes, but they're no more important than econometrics or finance or industrial organization or macro or any of a bunch of other topics. That our, our key challenge is to heed God's call to us and to seek and profess the truth, whether or not it's popular. Um, and the, the last part on research is really knowing one's audience, I think. Um, those of us who work on topics that are inherently applied, when I'm in Madagascar, I'm not talking to a bunch of academics. So if I speak in technical terms, my research has zero impact and zero usefulness. You have to know your audience. I have gotten very used to, over time, talking to policymakers and learning the jargon of World Bank ease for governments that are working with the World Bank and designing poverty reduction strategies because my research has to be able to translate into their language if it's to actually make a difference. And I liken this to a certain degree in speaking in tongues because you know, I show up at the Econometric Society and I talk about structural heteroscedasticity and mean estimation and then a week later I'm sitting in Kenya talking about how many roads to build in northern Kenya. And these are kind of opposite ends of the continuum at one level. But we have to be thinking about our audience. This is one of the traps I think many of us fall into. I, I know I fell into this trap for a while before somebody embarrassed me publicly into learning how to speak clearly to non-specialist groups. Um, we get so caught up in our research that we don't realize that nobody else knows what we're thinking about and that they're not thinking about these things at the level we are, and they aren't used to the language or the theory, and we really have to lay it out in basic terms and go from there. Um, we do better when we do that. Service and outreach. Um, David Mustard, who's a, a brilliant young economist at the University of Georgia, and I wrote a, a little essay um, oh, about nine months ago now, that uh, was published in the Journal of the Association of, Ec of Christian Economists called The Ministry of Referees and Discussants. There are some copies of it on the back table if anyone's particularly interested. Um, this, this little essay came about from some discussions I had with David where we were commiserating together over what miserable referee reports we were getting from journals and you know, how we were trying to change this and that we would never stoop to this level, although we both had written miserable referee reports ourselves. Um, and it really prompted me to think, I'm very grateful for these discussions with David, because it forced me to think hard about the things that we don't value at all in the academy, um, which are perhaps the most valuable opportunities for ministry. There's no material return to writing referee reports. Or Steve and David and, and Paul spent time reading my paper before you all showed up here and thinking through their comments, and, and they get no return from this whatsoever. This is purely a service. And it's often, I think, those sorts of service opportunities that create the greatest opportunity for us to, to really reflect on our ministry as Christians in the academy. That there is a corporate project, and I use the term corporate not in the sense of business-oriented, but in the terms of corpus, or the body of Christ. There is a corporate project of developing and discovering and being a witness to truth. And the fact that my research uncovers particular truths or Paul's research uncovers particular truths about poverty doesn't mean that it ends there. What's perhaps most important is what we do as a community. 
And we contribute to that in lots of ways, some of which we may get recognition for, most of which we won't. Most of the great work is not done by any of us. And what little we do that's very good is inevitably building on the great tasks of others. Or as I think it was Isaac Newton who said, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, that you know, what you accomplish is made possible by that which has been accomplished before your tasks began. There's a wonderful paper in economics, in the economics of economic development, called the O-Ring Theory of Economic Development by the Harvard economist Michael Kramer. Um, as many of you might recall, the Challenger disaster was caused by a rupture in an O-Ring, a tiny little piece in a very elaborate spacecraft. This thing cost, what, I think it was like $4. An O-ring was almost the least expensive part of the shuttle. And it ruptured and the shuttle went up in, in flames, tragically. And the point of Kramer's O-ring theory of economic development was that it's often not the big things, it's the little things that make a difference. That the biggest accomplishments all rest on small, typically overlooked acts or small, typically overlooked pieces, an O-ring in the case of a space shuttle. And I think that that is very true in the academic life. Um, before I came to Cornell, I was at another university in a department that became utterly dysfunctional, primarily because there was no service. Everybody was in it for themselves after a while. There was very little cooperation between people. It wasn't that people were, were vicious towards one another. It was just that they were uncooperative towards one another. And an atomistic department collapses in on itself pretty quickly. Um, one of the things I most like about the department in which I have the, the pleasure of, of, of working now is that it's a really wonderful group of people who spend a great deal of their time and energy helping other people out, getting no recognition for it whatsoever, and they don't mind. And they really do see value just to the collective enterprise. And it, it's a wonderful example to me day in, day out. I look down the hallway and see some of my colleagues who pour a lot of their, their heart and soul into things that, to the economist, should be valued at zero. But they don't. And that makes you think about, well, what really is their value system? What, what do their preferences look like to think like an economist? That they clearly aren't valuing what this is going to mean for their next merit pay increase. They're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. And maybe there's something I should be learning from that. Um, this is perhaps best captured by the, 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 the hymn line, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Although I would offer, them the, offer the caution there to my to junior colleagues, that doesn't mean be a patsy. <laughs> um, it is important to serve. It's also important to say no because you're called to multiple things, to research and to teaching as well as to service. And the thing that can chew up faculty fastest is being on a million committees that keep minutes and waste hours. Um, we need to say yes to God, and that doesn't always mean saying yes to every person who comes around to ask us. Um, before concluding, I want to talk about public profession of faith. I'm obviously willing to stand up in my own building with you know, little flyers going around that this is a Christian fellowship conference and that I'm speaking at. I'm willing to be identified publicly as a Christian by my colleagues. Um, and I know most, I would hazard the guess, I don't know the numbers, but I would hazard the guess that most of my colleagues who take their Christian faith seriously will not publicly identify themselves as Christian economists. 
And Dave Richardson is a prominent economist and very well known to have an active Christian faith. But there are quite a number of very prominent economists who are devout Christians, but almost nobody knows this. This question of the public profession of one's faith or the faith in one's profession, to reverse the words, I think is a really central individual question everybody has to ask themselves. I had a long conversation yesterday with one of my former graduate students who's now on faculty um, at a Christian university, actually. He's at a Catholic university. And we had a conversation precisely about this because he's deeply troubled by the prospect of being caught, was the verb he used, in Christian fora. This is a guy on faculty at a Catholic university. Um, his Catholicism means a great deal to him, but he's very worried about being identified as a Christian because he perceives that that will somehow uh, depreciate his value in the profession, that people won't take him as seriously. And I wish I could have told him that, oh, you're just wrong, because he's not. It does have an effect. I know that there was serious objection in a few quarters on this campus to my being hired here. There were some people who thought that you know, a guy who has papers in the Bulletin of the Association of Christian Economists and serves the Association of Christian Economists or puts papers in Christian Scholars Review, I don't know about this guy, and I'm not sure we really want him on faculty at Cornell, especially as a tenured faculty member. Um, I, I, I know that there were concerns like that registered by respected senior members of the faculty here. Um, I've certainly paid a price, but I've also reaped some great benefits from it. As Dave mentioned, I, I have the good fortune to, to coordinate a wonderful project right now funded by the Pew Christian Scholars Program that just dropped to my lap purely because I'm a Christian economist. It would not have come to me, I'm quite certain, were I not a Christian economist because the Christian modifier was central to defining the leadership that Pew wanted for that sort of a project. So there are good things that come of it and there are bad things that come of it. And in part, this speaks to our earlier discussions today about, about risk and people's willingness to, to take chances. Uh, that it's not just that poverty breeds insecurity, but insecurity breeds poverty. People are unwilling sometimes to make public professions of faith because there is a perception of a certain degree of martyrdom. Um, I see some, some knowing nods from more experienced people in the room than I am that they've, they've borne a real personal price sometimes for their willingness to stand up and be acknowledged as, as Christians and to speak out as Christians in an inherently pretty secular community at a place like Cornell. Um, so there are tangible costs and tangible benefits. And I want to be careful to not suggest that I think that one has to stand up and be public about one's faith. I think it's rather like that discovery zone metaphor. We each have to choose our own path. But this is a very important question that's best thought through ex ante rather than stumbling into it by mistake that you find yourself in a forum you feel uncomfortable with. Um, let me give a quick example. When I was president of the Association of Christian Economists, we, we have a program in the econ meetings every year, and we invite proposals for papers to be presented there. And a graduate student at a very prominent economics department submitted a paper and made the unusual request that he be permitted to present this paper under a pseudonym because he was going on the job market and didn't want to risk being identified a Christian and marginalized because he was some sort of kook for his faith in an inherently pretty secular profession. This was a deeply troubling request, as you can imagine, and we didn't honor it. Um, but it, it revealed the fact that he made the request was most troubling to me because 
He plainly was wrestling with this public profession of faith question without having really confronted it explicitly, figuring out whether he wanted to be in an association of Christian economists gathering and be publicly identified as a Christian economist. You can't kind of go halfway on that one. You're either presenting at the Association of Christian Economists meetings and you are publicly professing your faith, or you're not presenting there and you go ahead and practice your faith just like you do otherwise, but you're more anonymous in your faith. But the idea of presenting under a pseudonym revealed a certain... Uh, a certain unwillingness to come to grips with a very basic question that each of us face at some point along the road. Um, I'd like to, to, to end by talking about the importance of thinking about what we do outside of the university. Um, one of the real reasons why I became an academic was the personal concerns I had as my wife and I started having a family about pursuing a Washington career. The culture of career in Washington is I think, absolutely stifling for family life. Um, I mean, the days are long, the travel is great, cost of living is terrible, all these sorts of things that really wind up impinging on life, on family life the way my wife and I wished to, to lead it. And one of the great blessings of being an academic, I find, is the freedom we enjoy to basically schedule things around our family's demands. Uh, it's really important to take care of your family. I try to emphasize this to my graduate students who are, who are married or have kids, that if, if your wife or your kids or your husband aren't happy, you're not going to be productive. Um, make sure you're taking care of them. And that's no less true for the rest of us. Um, I, we like to, to indulge, and I think especially people like me who work on things like economics of poverty, you like to entertain these great visions that some research breakthrough of yours is going to make this great difference, that hundreds of thousands of people will no longer be poor because of fill-in-the-blank. The probability of that happening is infinitesimal. The probability of my being able to have a positive impact on the world because I spend time with my children and they know that they are loved and that the love of their father is the love of their father in heaven just transmitted through me, the probability that I make a difference to the world through my children is much greater than the probability that I make a difference to the world through my research. And one of the things I try to keep in mind is, is, is that, that the way I work with my children, the way I interact with my wife, the way I interact with people who work for me, I have several staff here, um, and the way I interact with my colleagues is probably much more important than what I do in the classroom or what I publish. That there are lots of different pathways through which we have an effect. You know, the discovery zone metaphor again. Some of, those, some of those little tunnels are just the way we relate to other human beings um, and not just people on campus. So let me, in closing, just remark, I, I personally consider being a professor to be just an incredible privilege. Um, but I came into the academic life after wrestling for a long time with the question of what was my ministry? You know, was I called to minister as a Roman Catholic priest? And God was patient with me and finally kind of kicked me in the right direction hard enough that I finally woke up and saw, no, I was to get married and become a father and to head off to a university. And that's where my ministerial calling was. And I continue to grapple every day with how really to manifest that calling to ministry in what I do. But I really do see us as professors having a ministry. 
having lots of different opportunities to fulfill our baptismal obligations as priest, prophet, and king, um, and a duty just like everybody else has to seek out God's will for us and to follow it. So, anyway, those are my thoughts. I thank you for your attention and indulgence. On this. Well, as we move into some question and answer, feel free to uh, help yourself to anything over here if you'd like. And uh, let's just open it up now. And uh, let's let's begin especially by directing comments in response to what uh, Chris has just presented. Uh, questions and comments. And then as we as we move on, feel free to ask questions regarding some of the material that we submitted. This is one of those questions I feared, actually. <laughs> I, I had thought about this, whether to try to address this topic. Um, how have I dealt with the issue of humility poorly, I think, is the honest answer. Um, arguably, the most embarrassing moment I've had as, a, as an academic was when I sat down to take a look at a referee report I had sent in to a journal, to a pretty prestigious economics journal, it had asked me to review a paper, and I was rereading this referee report because the paper had been revised and sent back to me. And I noticed that I had really thrown in a couple of truly gratuitous citations to my own work. Um, it, they were utterly irrelevant in the grander scheme of things to this paper someone was writing that was otherwise pretty good, but it was just I couldn't stop thinking about my own stuff as I was reading this person's work and kind of wanted them to recognize it too, which was an act of remarkable arrogance. Um, it, it's a really serious problem most of us face in the academy. I mean, most academics are overachievers by our nature, right? Um, and most normal people don't go off to get PhDs. Uh, <laughs> so we, we kind of go and do this, and that signals to a certain degree that we, we kind of like to go a bit beyond what others do, and we like it to be recognized in the conferment of some piece of paper and a title. And so I think we, we have an inherent tendency towards arrogance as a, as a population. Academics have this tendency. And arrogance is a sin. Um, I don't know how to combat it, save for it's good to struggle against it. And I certainly don't have the answer because I suffer from it myself badly. Um, it's a real problem in development topics to transition to the morning's conversation. Largely, I think, in this question of power that I was getting at towards the end. Thembawana Popigan and Yasi Humiya is all about you know, the grass has no voice. It's these arrogant elephants that are causing the problems that, you know, they fight for no particular reason and it has huge consequences. Um, 
I don't know how to deal with the question of arrogance. That's much more a question for a, a theologian or a sociologist than for an economist, I fear. very good points and this is a really important advance of the last 15 or 20 years in development thinking to take participation seriously to not just show up and say here's a technology use it there is a danger in this however um, you know if if we were working on development in 1492 and you ask people should you sail westward for an infinite period of time everyone would have told the, the popular wisdom was no so a participatory choice over technology would have been stay home. Just because everybody believes it doesn't make it right. I mean, this is the prophetic calling we have, right? To seek and to communicate truth, even if it's not popular. Um, indigenous knowledge is very important ingredient. I mean, I work primarily in agriculture. And local peoples have a, have a very rich understanding of the agroecosystems in which they work. And Western scientists coming in can often misread it pretty badly. You know, we, there, there are plenty of stories of true disasters. One of the communities I work in, um, Food for Work programs, propagated prosopsis tree, mesquite trees, uh, thinking this was a great way to produce fuel wood. But mesquite is a very rapid reproducer, and it took off across the countryside, and it's semi-toxic to sheep and goats on which these people depend. And so these mesquite trees have taken over 
And they crowd out grass and they, they hurt the gastrointestinal tracts and the teeth of these small ruminants. And it's just an unmitigated disaster. And it was imposed on these communities over their objections by better knowing outside experts. Um, that's a great tragic example of how we could learn from people saying locally, no, we need something that the sheep like. And I just tried to feed them some leaves and they don't like this. Um, but people who are in a state of poverty, who, who are choosing to remain poor or truly caught in poverty traps, necessarily aren't very well equipped to get out. They don't have the technologies they need. So the answer is, is, is a collaboration, is a marriage between outside science and extant knowledge and communities. That does take a certain amount of humility that doesn't exist, but it also requires not ceding responsibility to locals simply because you're new and they're not. Chris, I wonder uh, things about your comments on research. It seems to me that every scholar needs to be a research scholar in the sense of doing careful study and keeping the rest of the field. My sense in the humanity to say is over against the sciences is that research in the sense of constantly publishing actually ends up in many cases retarding the discipline and hurting students. Uh, if you look at education journals as an extreme, for instance, I, I think it's safe to say that 70% of the stuff published is not worth publishing. I'm not a humanist, so I, I'm not in a good position to, uh, to to respond to your direct remarks on the humanities. Although I sus- I, I'm sim- very sympathetic to your view on that. There is an inherent bias to publishing the new. And so reinforcing long-known truths isn't very interesting or very publishable. And to a certain degree, the most outrageous new claims are the most easily publishable, no matter whether they're true or not. Um, I think that that's an inherent risk in, in the publication business in general, regardless of field. And it may be a greater vulnerability in the humanities than in the sciences, either the natural sciences or, to a lesser degree, the social sciences, because we have a little bit clearer standards in the sciences of, of evidence 
You know, that I have the following hypothesis and I can or cannot reject the null hypothesis. That means something to an economist or to a physicist or a soil scientist. It's not quite clear what that means to somebody writing in history or writing in classics. Um, so I, I, I'm very sympathetic to your concerns on this. And, and my point is clearly not publication for publication's sake but rather research to continue to challenge yourself to understand things that you haven't understood before and to, and to revise your understandings. Um, let me offer a quick example. I, have, I had for many years uh, a practice of, I, I have a special interest in students from developing countries, so I tend to take disproportionately graduate students coming from developing countries because I feel I have a particular ministry to help produce scholars who will repatriate and contribute to the scarce stock of human capital in, in the sorts of countries in which I work. And so I had a standing policy that I would not take students who wouldn't commit to going back upon completion of their degree. And I told them ex ante I was not going to write them letters of recommendation for academic jobs or World Bank jobs or anything in the U.S. or in Europe unless their country was in the middle of a civil war or something like that. that. Sure, there would be extenuating circumstances, but as a rule of thumb, if I supervised them, they were going back because they weren't going to get a job here. And I've been challenged in that, and I've had to revise my, my position on that. Um, there's a brilliant economist at New York University named Jan Yarko, whose PhD is from Cornell. Um, absolutely brilliant economic theorist, who never returned to Ghana. He teaches at NYU. And he probably does more for Ghanaian higher education than any academic in Ghana. He's founded a private university in Ghana using the proceeds of a pretty generous NYU faculty salary. Um, he has taken on administrative jobs. He's the vice provost at NYU now, precisely because he wanted to learn administrative skills in a first-rate university so that he could go back and train his Ghanaian counterparts on how to do this, and he takes a couple of months every year to go back to Ghana. So he remits to Ghana more in dollars every year than he would have ever made in Ghana had he returned, and he's contributing much more in the flow of ideas and energy by staying here. Now, I don't think there are many people in the world like Yaw, <laughs> but Yaw's example has forced me to confront the fact that you know, my old kind of simple black and white rule was probably wrong. And that's not a research example, but I think that sort of, of learning of being open to being proved wrong, that we pose falsifiable hypotheses, whether it's in our, in our practice regarding students or in our research, and we're open to having our hypotheses falsified, I think that's really important if we're to keep growing. And maybe publication isn't always the way to do that. Fair point. Carl? Chris, you mentioned that at the, uh, toward the end of this morning's paper that there is no unique Christian approach to economics. And I'm curious to draw you out about that a little bit more because it seems like that thing could be interpreted in several ways. And uh, at the end of your paper, you didn't really elaborate right. it, it. It seems to me that. Um, I wasn't sure if you were saying that there's no singular Christian approach to economics. Certainly you're not saying Christianity has nothing to contribute to economics. No. Perhaps you're only saying that um, a, a Christian in economics is not necessarily doing work that is 
exclusive or distinctive from other economists? There seems to be a whole range of interpretations of that statement. <laughs> There's a reason for that, Carl. <laughs> um, Dave Richardson may be a better place to answer this question than I am, because Dave's been directly engaged in some of these debates within the association uh, for a number of years. I, I, I say that there's no unique Christian approach to economics in at least two senses of that phrase. First, Christian economists can do good work that honors God in a way that could not be distinguished from a non-Christian economist. So that's one sense. That just doing good economics can serve the Lord. So I'm not sure what the Christian modifier means in that sense. The second sense of the term is that there is legitimate dispute among the body of Christian economists over how one's faith ought to inform one's praxis of economics. Um, crudely speaking, there's a divide between a group that's largely based out of Calvin College that thinks we, we have to come up with a whole new way of doing economics. That economics as practiced currently based on largely neoclassical marginalist traditions is somehow not faithful to the gospel message. I disagree with that view. Um, I know Dave disagrees with that view. And you know, we're of the opinion that there are Christians who, do, who honor the gospel by practicing economics as it is today, and in part by pushing economics in slightly different directions, you know, drawing people's interests to questions that should be of concern to Christians. But there are, there are, there are Christian economists for whom I have a great deal of respect who just flat out disagree with me on this. Um, I don't know. Dave, do you want to add anything to this debate? You've been in it longer than I have. I, I don't know many Christian economists who disagree with me and you on that, for whom I have a lot of respect. I'm interested in who you have in mind. And <laughs> Dick? You that the two of you are distancing yourself from is the view that being a Christian in economics necessarily requires you to do things differently. Right, exactly. Exactly. The marginal analysis is somehow heretical. And if you read Marsden carefully, that's Marsden's position too. Right. Interesting. But, but Marx would say that about all disciplines. He does. Not as much. I mean, in. Well, and later. I mean, I think that's kind of interesting question because I think in some ways that you're doing sociology and I'm going to go out to the and even anthropology, I, I would have some problems with that in Christian. Methodologically speaking, I think they're not faithful to all of reality um, and, and are missing some, some serious aspects that, you know, as a researcher. Oh, okay. You turned it a little bit. Yeah, maybe that's what maybe that was helpful for me to sort of tease out what I'm saying. So, certainly some things that economists do in ethics are very problematic. I don't know. For example, the seat. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think it's similar to me. Mm-hmm. I, becomes whether one imposes that everyone is a profit maximizer or whether one is open to testing the hypothesis that people act as if they are maximizing profits. There's a subtle but very important distinction between those. I mean, we live in a fallen world in which people are, unfortunately, all of us are, unfortunately, oriented towards self-satisfaction to some degree. And this has proved to have remarkable explanatory power. I mean, that's why economics is as powerful and as respected a discipline as it is. Because our toolkit has proved to have considerable power in explaining human behavior in the aggregate. Not in explaining individuals' behavior, but in finding central tendencies in behavior. Because people do play to certain base instincts that we can observe, we can measure, that they don't act out of these great non-material objectives of being selfless. On the contrary, you know, we tend to act remarkably selfishly. So it has explanatory power. Where we get into danger as economists is where we think we have some explanatory power of explaining, of, of observing that people behave to a certain degree in selfish, in selfish fashion and that therefore people are purely selfish and that nothing else matters. And that now we should start prescribing policy on the assumption that people are only selfish. And we should teach economics and teach students to practice management on purely selfish grounds. That the only purpose of a business is to maximize the shareholder value for its owners. Um, That's where I think we are on very dangerous ground as economists. And is uh, is there a subpopulation of the profession that follows that road? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's a very large subpopulation of Christian economists who follow that road. Rather, we see a fallen world. We realize that the toolkit we're handed in marginal analysis is very useful in explaining an awful lot of what we see, and we want to add to that. It's not that it's wrong. It's that it's incomplete. And there's a very important distinction between those two things. The Calvin College view is that it's wrong, and I, just, I disagree with that. Uh, Chris, a better example maybe where it would make a huge difference would be in the field of ethics. Yeah. It almost all 
Yes. Ethics is done almost totally in a secular mode, even though the great majority of Americans ground their ethics in their religious beliefs. Right. So here, it would make a huge difference because my view is that if you want real diversity and fairness, you would also have courses at Cornell and uh, <laughs> other universities that were specifically theologically based Christian ethics. And I, I think it's interesting because that came through in your talk. Right. This is how I, Chris, function personally. Uh, or it comes through on this last issue, should we just maximize profit? So it seems to me as you get over more towards the human agency side, there you can have a distinctively Christian view. But the problem is the universities have largely censored that out on the mistaken view that secular reason is epistemologically superior and ought to be privileged right. as over against, say, uh, religious reason. And I think that's where, where the problem comes. You get it also in uh, departments that deal with areas like human de child development and here at Cornell and human ecology. The biases in some of these departments are just palpable. They absolutely will not consider certain approaches to marriage and human sexuality and child nurture and uh, so on because their ideological commitments don't permit it. Mm. So, so it seems to me that in some areas there is a distinctive Christian approach to the subject matter. Clearly, uh, ethics would be one of them. Yeah. Oh, I'm not dismissing that there might not be distinctly Christian approaches to some disciplines. I just don't think there is a distinctly Christian approach to economics. I think what Paul, with Paul, Carl, sorry, what Carl's question was because I had this somewhat leading remark at the end of the morning's comments. I, I don't see that as, as a big issue in economics. Others do, I don't. Keep uh, pressing this a, a bit more. <laughs> I think that what's being hinted at is that there, there will be including um, other ways of knowing or other categories of information uh, as a Christian that would be informed by your worldview. Um, and there might be, as a result of that, asking some questions that a non-Christian might not ask. Mm -hmm. And, of course, many disciplines are, are subject to those kinds of applications of Christian faith, and others are less so. Mm -hmm. And... Um, do you think that doing that does mean that you're doing a different kind of economics, or, or how would you how would you define the inclusion of those those categories or pieces of information? Yeah, yeah. I, to to offer an example, um, the the best work on the economics of gambling has almost all been done by active members of the Association of Christian Economists. This fellow I mentioned before, David Mustard. Uh, the new vice president of the association, Earl Grinnells at the University of Illinois, who used to be here, um, a number of other people. Christians take a particular interest in questions of gambling because there are very fundamental moral questions surrounding the behavior of gamblers, right? Both for their own personal concerns about individual behaviors, but also concerns about how these behaviors then propagate through a community. 
you know, the example of gambling for young people around them or for, for others who, who may be fairly hopeless. So Steve and I were having a conversation during lunch about you know, the New York lottery um, and that it really preys upon the hopelessness of many people, in my opinion, who don't stand much of a chance of ever becoming rich unless they happen to win the lottery. And so it preys upon the fact that they don't have other good prospects. I don't know many Cornell faculty who buy lottery tickets, but I do know a number of farm workers in Lansing, the town I live in just north of here, that buy lottery tickets. Um, so I think the fact that Christian economists study the economics of gambling is very directly a reflection of their Christian faith. That this is something that morally troubles them and they want to use the toolkit they've been given to explore this carefully. And I applaud their efforts and think very highly of their work. Um, I don't think that that makes for distinctively Christian economics in terms of either theory or method, however. It's just that I'm motivated to pursue particular questions because I think they're important and other people aren't looking at them carefully enough. I mean, that's explicitly a reason why I look at the economics of poverty. I think it's important, and I don't think there are enough good people working on the economics of poverty, so I choose to work on that. But that doesn't make the economics I use very different. I'm using the same basic tools that David uses to look at finance. But the, the Calvin School of Economists... Would disagree with that. <laughs> entirely different. Oh, yeah. They, 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 their, their basic belief, and I can't, I can't do it justice because I don't buy it, <laughs> but their, their basic belief is that we have to rebuild from the bottom up economic theory. That it's just, it's fundamentally flawed, and so any use of it is therefore flawed. You haven't particularly used the phrase uh, sustainability in <laughs> but, you know, I find that a lot of what's going on either in an ad label or corporate social responsibility or socially responsible investing and all of these things begins to draw you know either in large part or little pieces on you know what you know we as Christians I think you know would, would bring and might value uh, beyond ROI, you know, beyond the, the economics line, you know, putting me in a triple bottle and I know it's in And at the same time, you know, it seems to me that, and I'd be interested in some comments as to, to what degree or, or how can we, you know, look at these elements and, and build on those Christians and, and maybe try to see these as opportunities. And at another level, how are these possibly actually supplanting or are they, they almost threats to trying to uh, bring a Christian perspective within, you know, sort of the applied world of business and things like that. And I speak, you know, I'm on the faculty in the hotel school. Uh, it's, you know, we have uh, uh, arguably maybe we have more undergraduate teachers than does the applicable, we won't play the uh, I hope to begin to scratch the surface of that question over the whole semester in fall in AIM 200, so I, I can't begin to do justice to it in, in two minutes now. Um, I, I have deep reservations about the term sustainability and most of the literature that is developed under that term. 
similar reservations about the term social capital in the literature that's revolve around that. Um, not that I don't think there are very important kernels of truth in much of what's being put out. Rather that I think in aggregate, those literatures are heading in the wrong direction. They're, they're reductionist and missing what's really important. The, in my view, the, the, what's important about sustainability in the green sense of the term is that the entire biotic and abiotic order that we know is created by God. And that there's something inherently valuable to that that we need to recognize and respect, and that should condition our behaviors with respect to the environment. That doesn't mean we should be conserving everything out there. I don't think we ought to be trying very hard to conserve the AIDS or smallpox viruses, for instance. But those are clearly a part of the biotic community of the Earth, right? So absolute preservation of biodiversity, I think, is absurd. And I can't imagine that it's God's will either. Why it exists is beyond me, but the relationship is more complicated than sustain everything. It's respect that which God has created. Um, similarly, you know, the idea of social capital that has become quite a fashion in economics and the social sciences more broadly is recognizing the obvious truth that people's networks of relationships matter to their well-being and to the behaviors in which they engage. And, I mean, at one level, this is just so obvious that it almost doesn't merit comment, right? But, but the flip side to that is that disciplines like mine haven't accommodated that well enough. But in trying to quickly make up for lost time, we're tending to do it in a very bad, sloppy way. And what's needed is to take a little bit of a step back and rethink what social relationships really mean in the context of economic behavior. And that's much of what this project, this Pew Project Dave referred to on, on identity and community and economic behavior is all about. It's trying to get at those things. Um, so that's, I, I, I fear that's not really even an indirect answer to your question, but the, I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the ideas that we need to be thinking about more than the bottom line, um, that it's not just about maximizing return on investment. There are also other things that matter, social relationships, respect for the created order. But that that doesn't mean that the kind of mainstream of those literatures is actually helping us much yet. And we need to be pretty careful about just jumping into it head first and teaching our students those literatures aggressively because I'm not sure they're taking us the right direction. Do you happen to know if the, the Calvin approach to <laughs> economics is, uh, is, is generalized to all academic I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Others would know better than I. No, meaning that there's, there's a Christian physics, there's a Christian chemistry, there's a Christian... Yeah. And I, I happen to know that there, there was a um, there was a place in Toronto called the Institute for Christian Studies, which I believe did take that. And uh, I, I found it rather rather difficult to understand how that view applies to certain. 
I would agree with that. Speaking as a about that this morning. The Wall Street Journal, some of you may have seen, reported, I don't remember when, in the recent past, some point, um, that once you add in flows from the private sector, so private foundations, private giving to charities, etc., um, both through churches and through secular charities, both, that once you add all of that in, their claim was that international flows from the United States to the developing world had actually increased over time. Um, I haven't looked at the data myself. I had a brief exchange with a colleague who claims that that was double counting a rather large chunk that flows to charities that is provided to charities by government. So, for instance, food aid that we supply in this country flows through NGOs. So, Save the Children and Catholic Relief Services and Care get a huge chunk of their budget from U.S. government appropriations. And so that was being double counted because you took government flows added to that, the budgets of international charities and foundations, but a certain amount of that. And once you took that out, that in fact it was still going down over time. Um, but that, that, that raises a basic observation that is important, that we are increasing relying on private philanthropic giving. 
uh, much of it pretty small-scale stuff, you know, each of us writing $25 check here or there to a charity, um, and then some very big stuff. The Gates Foundation's work on tropical diseases, as, as one example. That private giving has plainly been on the rise in real terms over time. It's very important to recognize that private giving is very heavily driven by humanitarian concerns. It rises and falls with CNN. Um, the development investment that I'm talking about in developing stress-resistant rice cultivars, in developing goats that have higher lactation rates and are more resistant to disease, in creating trypanosomiasis tolerance among cattle in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I dare say nobody in this room has ever written a check for any of that and never will. The Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation funded the original Green Revolution Center investments that paid off in a Nobel Peace Prize. Their work is decreasingly in these areas. Their work has increasingly gone into other things. So even when you look at the private side, if you look at the part that I think really matters, education and developing technologies that actually can be deployed by poor people, it's all still going down. It may not be going down as fast as the purely public dollars are, but it's still going down at an alarming rate, and that's the wrong direction to go. There's been lots of very foolish expenditure of aid. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm in the middle of, of writing a book. In fact, tomorrow a co-author is showing up from from Nairobi. Uh, he runs food security operations in East Africa for Care. He and I are writing a book on the future of food aid, where we're being audacious enough to try to outline what we think the next 50 years of food aid would look, should look like, because next year is the 50th anniversary of the United States food aid programs. Um, and this book is largely a scathing indictment of American food aid programs to date. It's been money very poorly used. But that doesn't mean that we ought to be simply cutting it all off. It just means it mean, needs to be deployed differently. We need to have different rules. We need to change the way in which we appropriate this stuff. We need to change the way we procure it and distribute it. Because right now it's just an enormous welfare program for people who don't need it. There are people who need food aid who aren't getting it because we aren't bothering to learn some very basic lessons about how to do it right. And the answer to the food problems of food aid distribution today, which are, I'm afraid, about to become very painfully clear in Iraq in the coming months, the answer to that isn't to end it. The answer to it is to reform it, to change the way we do it, to learn from our mistakes. And the same is true of aid more generally. The, you know, the classic argument by those who oppose international aid has been, well, lots of it's wasted. That's indisputably true. They're absolutely right. The question becomes, what's the right answer to having messed it up a lot in the end? Is it to just cut it all off and say, oh, well, we can't do it right, therefore we're going to stop? Or is it to say, we therefore need to redouble our efforts to figure out how to do this right? Because at the end of the day, we are a rich nation blessed with abundant funds and abundant technologies, and we have a moral obligation to do something about suffering in the rest of the world. And the fact that we haven't got this right is an indictment of us that we need to set about correcting, and we don't correct that by just cutting it off. Um, now, others, I'm sure, in this room will disagree with that, and I, I, I would welcome other people's perspective on that. I've made it pretty blunt what my view is. <laughs> Thank you.
smaller organizations have more control, though, to make sure the distribution is correct? Absolutely not. Um, are there examples of small-scale organizations that are incredibly effective? Oh, certainly. Um, there's some really impressive charities out there working. Charity is a business. NGOs are the rapid growth industry and development. Um, most NGOs are not doing any better a job than the government agencies that they were replacing. One of the things that we document in this book is the very rapid rise in dependency of NGOs on food aid appropriations. Now, food aid as presently practiced is largely defended by charities because their budgets depend upon getting food aid the way it's practiced presently. Food aid dependency isn't a phenomenon among very poor people. The pastoralists among whom I work who've had food aid flows in constantly, uninterrupted during the whole period I've been working with them over the last six years, the, the share of their expenditures, their, their, the total value of the things they consume accounted for by food aid is typically about 2%. It's trivial. The share of the budgets of the NGOs operating up there that's accounted for by food aid is closer to 50%. They're the ones who stand to lose a lot by interrupting the present system. The unfortunate truth is that a lot of NGOs are standing in the way of progress in serving the poor. There are many NGOs that are very, very effective, but they're kind of held hostage by big ones that aren't. Um, it's not a popular line, and <laughs> I get beaten up routinely when I say things like that in Kenya and Ethiopia and Madagascar, but I call them like I see them. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to follow something that, that Ariel brought up, because... I keep mulling it over your question, and one of the things that it causes me to reflect on is that there are such very different ways of framing how we solve problems depending on the cultures. And you know, in answer to your question, certainly there are historical and political and religious uh, differences in how each of these cultures was formed that indicates how we go about solving problems like poverty. Um, to say what it is that produced the way we do things in the United States, that, that is a big question. But we do have a tendency in the United States, it seems, and I've noticed this a lot in, in now how we're posturing ourselves about the rebuilding of Iraq or, or these sorts of things, to say that the way we do things will work at other places. And I'm, I'm curious if you could comment on maybe something that you've learned about working in Sub-Saharan Africa, about how to take what we know, or what we've learned, and adapt it. You've made a couple of comments about that through the day. But maybe to emphasize from that particular angle. Um. Simple answer is hard. We don't have a whole lot of experiences where it's worked remarkably well. One thing we have learned and that we have some success in is that you can't do it through government or charities alone, nor can you do it through the market alone, that there's some combination of these that are very important. Um, the error for a long time in much of sub-Saharan Africa in much of the developing world, although I know Sub-Saharan Africa best, was in excessive distrust of commerce, that businessmen were somehow bad, 
Um, the businessmen are the sources of most innovations. And businessmen employ people. And businessmen do lots of things that is really important to relieving poverty. Um, business was, businessmen will get food to places that otherwise aren't getting it because they think there's a buck to be made in doing so. And there are important benefits to stimulating a vibrant business community. Now, does that mean that you should just let profit-minded entrepreneurs run amok? Of course not. <laughs> um, and we've seen that too. Somalia, that, I mean, that's what Somalia is. Somalia has no state. There are very few NGOs that really operate effectively in Somalia today. CARE is one of the few ones that is on the ground in a bunch of places and has stayed there. Somalia is largely just a bunch of commercially-oriented warlords. Um, if you want to replicate the laissez-faire economy and you want to know what it's going to look like, oh, visit Somalia. And I promise you it's not a pretty sight. Um, but at the same time, we, we've learned some really important things in American history and in recent American history, in the 20th century in particular, about the importance of freeing private enterprise to be creative. Um, and freeing the nonprofit side of private enterprise. I mean, most charities are an industry. They're, they're very creative, and that creativity is an important stimulus to economic growth, coming up with new and better ways of reaching poor people with technologies they can use and educating them and treating their diseases at a cost-effective way. Um, governments are crucial at providing the basic institutional and physical infrastructure to let everybody else do what they're called to do. That, I think, is perhaps the most fundamental lesson of American economic history, that the land-grant system, the interstate highway system, the rural electrification programs set the stage so that people all across this country could innovate and create phenomenal technological growth and employment creation that we benefit from today. And that has not happened in most of sub-Saharan Africa. Governments have not invested in those things, and they spent too much time restricting businesses and charities. And charities and businesses have tried to get into the business of doing what government should be doing. Um, working out the balance between the three legs of this stool is essential to kind of get the poor off the floor and onto the stool. I did interrupt a question over here. Since someone was ready to ask something. <laughs> there might be six or seven, as best as I know. We've used an NGO term. Yeah. We've used the charity term. What about the church? I mean, is there a unique, special role that the church can play in this, or is the church functioning in one more, you know, in this context, is one more NGO? You know, it's one more group that's engaged in a variety of things, and possibly particularly in the, in what you see in the African context, where we're told that we have the largest church, you know, in, on the planet, and yet at the same time, you know, we, we don't necessarily talk about the church in that context as the mechanism of, to deal with many of these issues. Yeah. Uh, guilty as charged. I do tend to lump the church in with NGOs in these discussions, largely because in the places where I work, most of the church's functions look identical to those of NGOs. Um, in the communities I work with in, in 
Kenya and Ethiopia, for instance, um, the kids who get schooled are going to mission schools. And women who give birth in clinics are giving birth in church-run clinics of any of several denominations. Um, so that the church is most manifest by tending to the very immediate needs of the poor, by educating their children, tending their sick, distributing food aid when they're hungry, etc. And so I tend to lump them all together. But that... that your, your point is well taken. I think that is too reductionist. And I, I don't give sufficient acknowledgement to the role that is often played in just encouraging people and helping to sustain a spirit when a body is perhaps somewhat lagging. Um, people who are hungry can be encouraged just by the demonstration and the, and the propagation of faith. And that's important. Um, it's indisputably important. It doesn't, and, and this may just be that because of what I do and where I visit, I don't see that side of it very much, but I don't see that as a remarkably active part of Christian missions in rural areas of developing countries. Um, most of what I see in Christian missions in rural areas of developing countries is tending to the physical needs of the poor. I, mean, I had long conversations with Catholic Relief Services last month when I was in Madagascar, and a lot of our conversations were over this SRI rice technology because they're busy trying to teach people how to do SRI and trying to figure out how to help more poor people be able to practice SRI. And they are the primary arm of the Catholic Church working in rural Madagascar. <laughs> you know, and it was developed by a Catholic priest, this technology. Um, you don't hear the side of how they're ministering to the souls. You hear the side of how they're tending to the very immediate physical needs of these peoples. Um, which, again, probably reflects my bias that I'm going to look for that stuff because that's what I study, and so that's the only thing I'm seeing. Um, it's unfortunately reductionist in that I, I, I very much recognize and value the spiritual encouragement beyond that. Um, I'm not sure it's actually a very large activity today, though. Boy, that brought some hands up. <laughs> and Dick? <laughs> Example might be uh, what some of the Pentecostals and others are doing in Central and parts of South America, where Good point. they're really telling men to stop uh, messing around with other women, stop their drinking, educate their children, and is resulting in the development of a real middle class that has then huge economic implications. So I think that would be an example where. The yeah. Churchly function of evangelism and so on really is making a big social difference. Yeah, and this is probably partly a geographic bias that, you know, I work in areas that are borderline Christian Muslim primarily. And that quite, I've I've heard a, a priest describe it to me in northern Kenya as our way of defending the faith is to make sure that we feed people before the Muslims do. Um, which I consider a remarkably cynical statement, but it may be that there's, there, there is a different view in the settings in which I work of what the best way to propagate the faith is. And in, in Central America, well, in Latin America in general, there is this remarkable uh, transformation of, of conversion of Catholics to evangelical Protestantism. And I, I've, I've heard several stories along the line of what Dick just reported. And that, I guess, speaks to a little bit of, of the remarks I was making at the end of the morning session about the moral underpinnings of the economy. Um, 
firming up people's behaviors because they just start to do what's right, that they don't beat their wives or cheat on their wives, that they don't cheat people with whom they, they have business transactions, is important to making things work reasonably well so that wealth creation is possible. Um, so it's not that the value of spiritual formation it can be reduced to its economic indirect effects. Um, but those effects exist and not to be recognized and celebrated in addition to simply transforming the behaviors of people into you know, helping them to follow what we think is more the gospel message than they may have practiced before. That, that's indisputably valuable. I don't happen to see that much of where I work, but I, I, I agree with Dick. I've heard lots of stories of that from people who work extensively in Latin America. Well, it's, it's reminiscent of some of the emphasis that Ron Sider has been making lately, yeah. that uh, when a Christian ministry emphasizes only care for the soul, they may tr- bring about a moral transformation of the person, but if they don't provide for the, the person's <coughs> structural needs of gaining job skills or of addressing the larger structural situation that, that prevents there from being jobs for which this person might become qualified, that that moral transformation will end in demoralizing as the person is not able to, to better himself economically. Whereas uh, programs that only address the job skills or the creation of jobs but doesn't address the, the person's soul, so to speak, um, doesn't bring about the change in the lives that they can appropriate those uh, goods that are being made available to them. So that both of those aspects need to be addressed. And uh, it's worth mentioning that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he both tended to people's souls and to their bodies. Um, in uh, political instability and wars that generated a lot of poverty on the continent of Africa, as you know, I was wondering whether you could make a comment regarding the economics of wars on the continent. They're bad. <laughs> rich, rich people don't die as frequently as poor people die. I mean, wars are not typically fought in the plush suburbs of capital cities. Uh, they're, they're fought in rural villages, and young men and boys oftentimes are pressed into service. I mean, there's this, there's a, 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 a truly terrible movement in northern Uganda known as the Lord's Resistance Army that routinely presses into service eight, nine, and ten-year-old boys as soldiers, and captures girls of equivalent age and keeps them as concubines and servants. Um, I dare say that even in the Balkans and other places that Americans typically think of as just these kind of hell holes where war is just really ugly, you don't see things that are quite that grim as you have in in northern Uganda in the battles between the Lord's Resistance Army and the Ugandan government. Um, War is unspeakably damaging to the poor materially and morally. Um, I mean, imagine... The young Sierra Leoneans who, when the war stopped, are now missing limbs because people would just hack off hands and legs. That this was a symbol, this was a sign that we've been here. 
what do you think that that's done to their, not just economic prospects, but their view of life and of humanity? I, I can't imagine that you have, even in a now reasonably peaceful Sierra Leone, that you've got large communities of people who are encouraged about working with other humans, who can trust others, who want to work for the common good, having seen how people will turn on one another. Um, war is not just destructive in blowing up bridges and, and killing livestock or killing people. It's destructive in just crushing our spirit of what we're called to do from God. I mean, I, don't, I, I can't imagine that God is happy with war. And war is, is the manifestation of, of human evil. Now it may be, and I was a former army officer, it may be that we have to respond to evil, we have to respond to physical force manifest by evil with physical force to resist. But this is tragic even when we fight in some sort of just fashion. Um, the consequences are huge and terribly underestimated, I'm sure because we tend to just count the material destruction of war and we miss what this does to people's spirits, their willingness to work with one another and to work for one another. Africa, unfortunately, has a, has a, has a you know, really unfortunate recent history and in some places very bleak prospects because of war. But we as Christians have a chance to make a change in terms of poverty. Oh. There's a lot of problems persist. And the follow-up to that, uh, as long as um, businesses around the world are also fueling those wars in the sense that they do business with the warlords, yeah. we really have a chance. Um, we will not work at different levels to perhaps uh, discourage yeah. the whole enterprise of uh, Wars. Let me distinguish here between humanitarian response and development. Um, because I think humanitarian response has to directly tend to the victims of war. And I think we have a moral obligation to deal with war refugees, to help the, those who are injured, etc. That said, you know, the, economists, the economists' constant response is to focus on the scarcity of resources. We have relatively little to work with in the African continent. And we have to make difficult choices. Triage is critical. Pouring money into development efforts in southern Sudan or northern Uganda or eastern Zaire is money wasted right now. It's money that is not contributing to development because it does wind up getting sucked up in commercial operations that underlie wars, etc. We simply have to be willing to distinguish between investment in improving the structural conditions, the prospects for the poor over the long term, which can only be done in places that are peaceful. Um, we have to reallocate money in response to these sorts of events over which we have little control. And at the same time, I think it's especially incumbent upon the church to work very actively to promote peace and to head off conflict in these places. I mean, one of the unfortunate things about the church in Africa is that the clergy have been more engaged in conflict, in fomenting violence, than I think is often recognized. I mean, Rwanda and northern Uganda and Angola, there are 
unfortunately, a fair number of cases of priests and ministers and bishops who've actively encouraged violence. And I see no place for that in the gospel message. And I think that on the contrary, the, the religious need to be taking a stand. And by that, I don't just mean those who've taken a, a profession of, uh, you know, who, who, are, who take as their full-time profession ministry. But all of us who profess our faith need to be prepared to stand up and, and, and argue for peace. It's, it's central in these places. Um, the church hasn't been as much of a force for peace as it ought to be. But there are some nice examples where it has been. Um, in Madagascar last year, there was a contested presidential election, and the, the fellow who is now president won, but the former president refused to recognize this. And there emerged a split that started to turn violent. And Madagascar is, is almost entirely Christian, largely based on on the Catholic Church and the FJKM, which is an indigenous Protestant church. And the, the Catholic and FJKM leaders together made appeals, went on tour, if you will, around the country to make appeals for peace. And there were only something like 12 or 15 deaths during a six-month civil war. Um, I suspect that their appeals for peace had an important impact on that. And now there's a very robust recovery that's begun. And I think that the religious community deserves some credit for that. Unfortunately, that's kind of been the exception, not the rule in recent African history, as I suspect you're more aware than I. Uh, 